And in Luke chapter 2 or 3, we run across a man called Simeon and a really, really blunt pastor. And let's get right into it. First of all, with a man called Simeon, let's read out of Luke chapter 2. Now there was a man in Jerusalem called Simeon. See where I got my title? See what I did there? Okay. Who was righteous and devout. He was waiting for the consolation of Israel. I'll explain that later. And the Holy Spirit was on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not die before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. Moved by the Spirit, he went into the temple courts. When the parents brought in the child Jesus, so Joseph and Mary, to do for him what the custom of the law required, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God. He's looking at Jesus and he says this, Sovereign Lord, as you have promised, you may now dismiss your servant in peace. He's saying, I'm ready to die here. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the sight of all nations. Amazing, okay? Now, this is such a cool story. I love the book of Luke. It has so many cool stories that are found nowhere else in the Bible, and this is one of them. Here's this man called Simeon, whose name actually means the God receiver. How appropriate is that, okay? He's a really good guy. We're not told much about him, but in my mind's eye, whenever I read the story, He's an older gentleman because he's basically saying, I'm ready to die now. And he looks like Santa. I don't know why. I don't know if that's true, but in my mind's eye, he looks just like Santa. But we're not told. But what we do know about him, he was really excited to meet the promised one, the consolation of Israel, the Messiah, which was this leader in his mind, was this leader that was going to be sent by God to earth to make everything right again. And the moment he lays eyes on Jesus, he knows he's the one. He's the Messiah, the promised one. Which is absolutely remarkable when you think about it, because Jesus at this time was only eight days old. So he hadn't done anything noteworthy yet. No miracles, no nothing. Just baby stuff. Eating, crying, whining, burping, sleeping, you know, lather, rinse, repeat. That's all Jesus was doing at the time, okay? And add to that the fact that most people assume that when the Messiah came, he would come, and it was, they imagine a he, he would come and be uh, arriving in all this fanfare and notoriety and displays of awesome power. Namely, that he would come and wipe out the Romans who are oppressing the Jewish people at the time. And yet, here's Jesus, eight days old. They never imagined the Messiah would come as an eight-day-old baby wearing diapers at a dedication service. Can you imagine if in our next election, one of the people that ran was an eight-day-old baby, and they won? And we said, here's your next president. Okay, we're going to have to wait for you because you can't even sign anything yet, but okay, here we go. So it was shocking to them. But Simeon had this promise in his heart, this deep cellular knowledge of what the Christ, what the Messiah was going to be like. And Jesus met all those requirements. He just knew in his gut that Jesus was the rescuer. He was the one. So many people, I tell you this over and over, but it's so true. I run across it all the time. I talk to people like this. So many people are leaving churches in droves right now. They're not leaving because they don't believe in God. They're not leaving because they aren't spiritually searching for truth. They're leaving because the promise in their heart of what they think Jesus is like is not matching up with what they're hearing in sermons or on television or reading in articles. And I feel like one of my main jobs 
is to help people drop their negative views of Jesus and see him for the compelling, captivating individual that he is. So who is this Jesus that Simeon was so excited to see? Let me just mention a few traits that he has, and you'll discover more as we go through the book of Luke, but here's a few. First of all, he's kind. He's overwhelmingly kind. He's not angry. He's not mean. He's kind. In John chapter 8, there's a story of a woman who was caught in the act of adultery right around the time of a great national celebration. And she was drugged um, by a group, probably literally drugged, by a group of sanctimonious, holier-than-thou religious leaders. And notice only she was brought before Jesus by this group, not the man, because that's how jacked up their thinking was at the time. They thought that women were to blame for everything. And some of you women are smirking at me right now going, not much has changed, okay? And I, I hear you on that one, all right? But she's drugged before Jesus by this group, this holier-than-thou group. And the group looks at Jesus and says, should we kill this woman by stoning her to death, throwing rocks at her until she dies? Should we kill her? Because that's what our law requires. Their laws were a little jacked up at the time, too. And, and Jesus doesn't say a word. He simply leans down, according to the story, and starts writing something in the dirt. And then, without even looking up, he says, let him who is without sin throw the first stone. And it says in the story that one by one, starting with the oldest to the youngest, they walked away. And he looks up at the woman and says, are none here to accuse you? And she goes, no, nobody's here to accuse me. And he says, neither do I. Now go and leave your life of sin. This is so kind. He's basically looking at this woman and saying, beloved friend, dear friend, you are worth so much more than this. Now go and find someone who will love and respect you instead of using you. That's how kind Jesus is. He doesn't condemn. He forgives. He doesn't blame. He heals. Jesus is kind. Second of all, he's a game changer. In the last book of the Bible, which I've never preached in yet, and I should, because it's one of the most misunderstood books in the Bible, the book of Revelation, it's pretty trippy. You've got to do a lot of studying, or else you just think the writer of the book was on acid. I mean, honestly, you're reading it and going, whoa, there's a lot of weird stuff in there. But in chapter 5, John, who was not on acid, was, uh, he, was, he saw this vision, this vivid dream. And in the dream, he saw someone sitting on a throne and holding this, this sealed scroll. And the scroll appears to be God's good purposes for humanity. And so to break the seal and read the scroll would be to implement God's good purposes for all of humankind. The problem is nobody could do it. Nobody could break the seal. Nobody could read the scroll. And so John starts to weep, not patient, little, polite tears, but mucusy sobbing, despair had set in. In his mind, the world was like one big giant Humpty Dumpty that was broken and nobody could fix it because nobody could read the scroll. And then suddenly another character in the, in the vision, uh, this elder, this wise elder, looks at him and says, John, stop crying, stop your whining, and look up. And John looks up and he sees a lamb, but not just any lamb, a lamb that appears to have been slaughtered but was somehow standing, and the lamb was holding the scroll. And angels burst into song and says, You, you lamb, you're worthy to take the scroll and break its seal. And the message is clear. Jesus is the lamb. He's the one who has come 
to institute God's good purposes for humankind on earth. He's going to reconcile us to God and to each other. And He's going to make the world right again. Rebuild it out of the rubble and mess we've created. I told you a few weeks ago in another sermon that Humpty Dumpty creeped me out more than any children's story ever. I was just thinking about it again and I just shuddered because I hate eggs in any form except cake and cookie batter. Okay? I never eat omelets. I never eat fried eggs. Scrambled eggs are nasty. So I I can't eat eggs. So this story of a giant egg man that gets pushed off a wall is just so morbid to me. And then it says all the king's horses don't know why they were asked to help. They don't have opposable thumbs. But all the king's horses and all the king's men couldn't put him back together again. So they... uh, I don't know the whole rest of the story, but evidently they just leave him in this omelette sticky, gooey mess. And they just leave him on the streets. And I think that is a creepy story. That's a horrible story. But the story of Jesus is such a better story because he puts us back together again. This is how my mind works. This is what my wife has to live with every day of her life, okay? But that's how I see it, okay? It's such a better story. Thirdly, Jesus is radical. The more you read about him in the Bible, the more you realize Jesus messes with people. He messes with the status quo. He was always hanging around the wrong type of people. He was labeled a friend of sinners. He championed the cause of the poor and the marginalized in society. He was like that. According to Roman law, there are only three types of people that were crucified. They killed in other ways, but there are three types of people that were hung on a cross until they were dead. The first was rebellious slaves. The second was pirates. (laughs) I know, who knew, okay? Pirates. And third was enemies of the state. Jesus was the latter. He was an enemy of the state because he wouldn't go along with the Roman oppression. He wouldn't go along with their way of thinking that said the rich will get richer while the poor get crushed. He would have none of that. And he wouldn't go along with their way of thinking that said power is far more important than compassion. No way. He stood against that. He spoke against that. And they killed him for it. He was an enemy of the state. A religious and social radical who messed with the status quo. And to this day when you follow him, you'll find yourself being led to stand against violence and injustice and oppression whenever you see it. Jesus is radical. Don't try to tame him. He is not tame. Okay? And lastly, Jesus is inclusive. In verse 32 of chapter 2, Simeon states this. He says, and I'll put it up on the screen, Jesus will be a light for the Gentiles. And it's easy to just read right past that in the Bible and think, no big deal. Oh my gosh, was this a huge deal. Because this is first century Jerusalem. And at this time, all the Jews thought, hey, we've got a corner on the whole God market. We, the Jews, we are in, and all the others, which is what Gentile means, the others, all the others are out. We're in with God, accepted by God, loved by God. All the others don't have a place with God. So when Simeon comes along and says, Jesus, this Messiah, is going to be a light for the Gentiles, what he was saying is, Jesus is inviting everybody to the table. He's inviting everybody to the party. You know, I read recently, and I I think I mentioned this in a sermon too, but I am 54, and so I forget. But it's such a good story, and I reread it again. 
it's a sermon of a pastor, and he's over in Great Britain, and he did a he did a funeral for a, a very notorious criminal in their area, very famous movies that even been made about him. Um, watch the Great Train Robbery, and you'll you'll know who I'm talking about. And he got hammered for doing Ronnie Biggs's funeral. He got absolutely hammered for it by Christians. By Christians, they accused him of glorifying criminals. They accused him because he did this funeral, of bringing shame on himself and the church and even God. And he didn't care. He did the funeral anyways because like Jesus, he was the kind of person who believed in welcoming everybody to the table. When I was a little kid, I don't know if you had the same quirk, but when my parents served me dinner, I didn't like my food to touch. I mean, seriously didn't like it. I had separate, we didn't have separate dividers on our plates, we just had normal plates, but I would put it all in neat little piles and eat it one at a time, and none of the food could ever mix. So if my dad or mom handed me the plate and stuff rolled over and touched, I would look at it like in horror and go, this meal is ruined because this food is contaminated. My peas are touching my chicken right now. And I just couldn't stand it, the idea of my food touching. I don't know why. Again, this is what my wife lives with. And then... Finally, my parents said, you know, when you eat it, it gets all mixed together in your stomach. And that thought at a young age never occurred to me. I thought, oh, you're right. And then I started thinking about the church again. Everything relates to this to me. And I thought, you know what the church is? We are a giant, this building is like a giant stomach. You're welcome for that mental picture, okay? Where all different kinds and types of people come together and God stores us to store is that a word? Stirs us together, okay? That's what the church is. That's why I want to show you our logo right now. That's why our logo is what it is. This is just our simple church logo, Fifth Avenue Church. You'll notice right in the center, hey, you can't see this when it shines on that. I have this all figured out. Okay, I'll just use my finger. You'll see that in the center of this logo is a cross, and that's on purpose. Stephanie, who designed it, she just knew innately, I didn't even have to tell her this, that Jesus is the center of all of our gatherings. But you'll notice there's four, what used to be squares here, because we're part of our denominations called Foursquare, and this circle that makes the bottom of the five represents to her like a turnstile door, an open door, because she knew by coming here, everybody's welcome here. That's what our logo means, okay? We welcome everybody in this church because Jesus welcomes everybody to the table too. I am so compelled. Yeah, you can clap for that. Man. I remember the movie, the old um, Lion King movie, and I just love this one scene. I've used it in other sermons too. I love this one scene where the hyenas are gathered and somebody says the name Mufasa, which is the name of the, the big lion, the big burly Lion King, and they shudder. They go, Mufasa, ooh, say it again. And then somebody says, Mufasa, ooh, and they just kind of shudder. You know who Jesus is? He is not some character in a stained glass window. He's not some figure frozen in a, in a Sunday school message. He's none of that. He's compelling and captivating. So captivating, he should make us shudder. We should hear his name go, Jesus, ooh, say it again. That's how Simeon felt. That's why he was so excited to see Jesus that when he saw him, he says, Take me now, God. I can die a happy man. I have seen the one. That's who Jesus is. Second of all, let's talk about a really blunt pastor. If 
by chapter 3, John the Baptist is all grown up, and he goes out into the boondocks, into the wilderness, and he is a freak show, man. If you read about him, he's eating bugs, and he dresses in weird clothes, and he's baptizing people, and he's preaching, and he is so blunt. His first sermon is like blunt force trauma, and I'm going to read it for you because it's just so good, okay? John said to the crowds coming out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, is that not the best line to a sermon start you've ever heard? Can you imagine me starting a sermon like that? You bunch of slimy snakes, okay? I actually did start a sermon like that once, but it didn't go well. You brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, well, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you that out of these stones God can raise up children of Abraham. They're saying, but we're Jewish people. And he's going, God can make Jewish people out of rocks. Okay? And that's not knocking Jewish people. He goes, God can make chosen people out of rocks. The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. It will be burned. What should we do then? The crowd asked. Great question. John answered, anyone who has two shirts should share with one the one who has none. And anyone who has food should do the same. Even tax collectors came to be baptized. Teacher there asked, what should we do? And they said, basically don't extort people. Don't collect any more than you're required to do, he told them. And we can stop right there. This is so blunt and even a little bit rude, and I just love it. And his main point, when people came to him and said, in light of this truth you've told us about Jesus, what should we do? How should we live? His main point could be summed up in three words. Share your stuff. That's what he's telling them. Share your stuff. I want to put up two laws for you. The first is the first law of kindergarten. Share your crayons. Okay? That's the first law of kindergarten. Okay? Secondly, this is the first law of the jungle if you're ever lost in the jungle. Remain calm and share your bananas. So innately, we know as human beings, even from a young age, we're supposed to share our stuff. But yet, 2,000 years after this, this blunt sermon by John the Baptist, we are still struggling with the concept of sharing, even in the church. I was reading about a, a homeless shelter that formed in a really poor area of Philadelphia, which I think the whole city of Philadelphia is a really poor area, just about. And it formed in an old abandoned building. There's no electricity or anything, but a bunch of families and some church leaders formed a homeless shelter, and it was going well, and news of it got out in the newspaper, so people were bringing them some of the basic things they need just for survival. And there were two gifts that caught this leader's attention. The first um, was a big box, and it said, for the homeless, and he rips it open. He's so excited to see, what have we been given? And it was a bag full of microwave popcorn, which was useless because they didn't have a microwave because they didn't have electricity yet. So it was basically just worthless. And then another group came, counted all the kids, and later came back and, and brought bicycles for every single kid in the shelter, turkey dinners for every family in the shelter, and thousands of dollars to help with fixing up the building. The first gift of microwave popcorn was brought by a really well-to-do church congregation from a rich area of Philadelphia. The second gift was brought by members of the mafia in Philadelphia, organized crime. And I'm reading this thinking, so members of the mafia had a better concept of sharing and giving than the church did. 
that's just sad. That is just sad, and it shouldn't be like that. Now, people come up to me all the time, and they're, they're so excited because they're, they're part of the church. They're believers. They're followers of Jesus. And they have this desire to share, but they usually want to start by sharing their faith. Well, I want to share with people my beliefs in Jesus, my love relationship with Jesus, because I want them to experience Jesus like I have. And I always tell them, great. That's so great. I'm so glad you have that desire. But let me tell all of you, you know a really effective way to do that? You want to know an effective way to share your faith? Share your faith while you share your stuff. Okay? Go up to people and go, Jesus loves you. Here's a toaster. Jesus loves you. Here's some shoes for your kids. Jesus loves you. I'll buy lunch. Okay? Whatever it takes. Share your stuff. And our role model for this is God himself. The most famous verse in the Bible is, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. Did you catch that first line? For God so loved the world he gave. You could say, for God so loved the world, he shared his stuff. <laughs> he shared his stuff. Look at this verse, the couple of verses out of 1 Timothy. This just rocked my world this week. Command them, the rich, which we're in America. That's us, okay? Command them, the rich, to do good, to be rich in good deeds, and to be generous and willing to share. For look what happened. In this way, they will lay up treasure for themselves as a firm foundation for the coming age in their future so that they may take hold of the life that is truly life. The life that is truly life. I looked up that phrase in its Greek language, what truly life means, and you know what it means? It means truly life. That's literally what it means, okay? It means the best version of life. And I got to live that version of life this week. In our December giving, we targeted several things. Two of the things we targeted um, was Angel Tree. We bought presents for kids who one or two of their parents were incarcerated. And we also donated money to a tattoo artist in the Whitaker neighborhood that tattoos women that have been rescued out of the sex trade industry. And usually when they get into the sex trade industry, they're branded basically by their pimps with horrible they're actually more scars than they are tattoos. And um, we donated money so we could help. And we gave enough. She could only, not only help one girl, but help two. Um, she expected $50, and we collected from people in our church almost 1000 to give to her. So I got, I know, that's pretty cool, huh? And so I gave her the checks, and she thought it was going to be 50 and, and she texted me later, and so did the people we gave the present to. I got letters from the family that we gave presents to saying, thank you so much, I can't believe you did this for my, my kid who I can't see because I'm incarcerated right now. And I got a text from the tattoo artist, Susan, whom you know, Bill, and she said, I am crying right now, tears of joy, to know that there's a church, we're the only church that's doing this, that there's a church partnering with what I'm doing for these incredible women. And then she sent three emojis, a heart, praying hands, and the rock and roll sign, <laughs> which if you knew her, it just makes perfect sense, okay? And in those moments, I'm reading these thank you texts and letters, and I am truly alive. I am truly alive to be a part of a church community that's doing this. I just felt so alive, and it was so great because I was having such a, a difficult week, but I felt so alive. You know, instead of John the Baptist that he came to prepare the way for Jesus. And he did. But notice something here. His first sermon 
was about sharing. And that tells us something, that our generosity will prepare the way for us to experience more of Jesus. You want to connect with Jesus? You want to go to a deeper level with Him? Great. I'm so glad you have that desire in your heart. Start by sharing your stuff. You'll experience more of Him, and you'll experience life that's truly life. Let me pray for us today, can I?